I think the obvious warmth of that applause reflects the fantastic contributions of all of the panellists. Now, we have some time, not as much as we might have hoped for, contributions and questions, and both types are welcome. But please, in the interest of time, if you have a comment or contribution, please keep it relatively brief. If you have a question, a direct question, please say to whom it's addressed, and I'll give the panellists a chance at the end to, to, to come back. And we'll take a group, I think, of comments and questions. Um, or several groups. So can I see some hands on perhaps this side of the room, first of all? No, hands anywhere. I can see a lady, at front, a woman at the front, sorry. Um, yes, thank you very much. I, I thought all contributions were incredibly inspiring and inspirational, so thank you very much for the energy and uh, the vision. Um, I completely agree that um, connected histories are very important, and we see the current neo-colonialist context in terms of austerity and uh, precarity and the effective uh, violence of the state, very much gendered and misogynistic, which I also wanted to juxtapose in relation to the academy. The academy, in terms of its metric, impactful, refable, gendered violence that it uh, exerts, which is very much effective. And the modes of resistance that we can um, imagine. So are there any feminist projects, radical feminist projects of utopia within the academy? And how can we visualize and implement those in terms of both protecting the, not, not the disciplines, but actually our own scholarship in the backdrop of anti-intellectualism, and also um, our subjects as meaningful and real, women's studies, feminist studies. Thank you. That's open to everybody. Hi, I would like to ask all of you, and in particular uh, you and you, um, um, what I've been struggling with, which is uh, how to create new connections for a um, positive new vision of the future and um, something that we can create together when what I see is a lot of disconnection and fragmentation uh, between women and uh, specifically in the feminist arena between different feminist um, views and groups. What I've always struggled with is how, how can we be more open and more accepting of everybody in order to create this new future that we all are striving for. And, and I would like for the comments to be practical. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I've got two questions, quick ones. One is a historian's question, um, open to anybody, but I'm particularly interested in Barbara's answer, which is how do we deal with the utopias of the past that are not our utopias, that where, where we don't find the resonance? I'm thinking here of uh, Dora Marsden that, that, that Lynn mentioned, who um, you know, had a kind of utopian vision of the genius, of the superwoman, of an elitist model of change that happens from the front. It's not, not, not a, a particularly um, attractive utopia, uh, utopian vision to me. So how, how do we deal with otherness, with lack of connection? And then the kind of activist question was really a question that was sparked by watching the wonderful Carrie Greenholm uh, film earlier, which um, made me think a lot about song and made me think about uh, utopianism and a vision of change that's embedded in practice 
and in our artistic or creative contributions. Um, I wondered whether that resonated with you in, in the kind of utopian visions that, that you think about. <coughs> Matt's looking a bit underemployed at the back with the microphone. So, are there any mm -hmm. questions towards the back of the room? We'll take one more. Yeah? Oh, sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> False alarm. Okay, we do have one down at the front and then we'll ask the panel to respond. <laughs> um, I just asked the question where would you put campaigns like the. Um, very amazing campaign against female genital mutilation, which is a British campaign, but also an international campaign. And also ones like um, the upsurge in campaign for abortion, because um, you called a rush for, you know, the change of thinking. Um, I would say that when people were declaring feminism today in the 90s, we were still fighting things around Northern Ireland and all kinds of places, and there's all kinds of activities that are still going on. My experience of being in the academy this last two years is that a lot of history and stuff that's been going on is completely invisible. But one of the barriers that I've got to it is um, whenever you try to talk about it, the language of everything has changed. So you can't really talk about things. You're sitting there, people are talking about things that you're part of, but they're talking about it in ways that are so removed from reality. That I think that um, the, the sort of the absence of women's history and the absence of any recognition that women's history matters. I mean, I've had stuff out of women's history since being told I didn't discuss gender. You know, as though kind of women's history wasn't a separate thing. But women's history is about, what did somebody say about the post-factual world? Yeah, I think we should maybe stay out of the post-factual world a bit more. Okay, so lots of interesting issues there raised around otherness, campaigning, how to create networks of solidarity and fellow feeling. Um, Barbara, do you want to? to no, I'm going to, to sit on my hands for a minute and hear what others have to say. Shada? Oh, this is tough. Okay, um, they're really tough questions. So the first one was about anti-intellect cultures of anti-intellectualism, and did you mean the structure of the university itself? He said the metric of the university. The oppressive structures of the yeah. university, the neoliberal corporate structures, and yeah. eroding everything that's feminist. And yeah. Well, I think, uh, as I did uh, the last ref, as I thought, as I thought forever, that um, the point of the university is that we teach, despite the fact that our students pay for home students certainly and overseas students pay for their degrees, the point of the university is to teach against the logic of capital, and also the thing that Spivak says that teaching is about the uncoercive rearrangement of desires. And every part of that sentiment, I think, rings true. It's the desires. The university is absolutely about desires and rearrangement, as in it's not about finding new things or uh, the flash of the new. It's about the rearrangement of the desires that exist and uncoercive. That's what teaching is. And art forms particularly, we, I teach in the humanities, that it is about um, not being didactic um, or predicting a future, um, but teaching by... Mod by, by example, that's all you can do when you're being reft. You can just teach the work and undertake the research that um, shows to your students and to your colleagues what's at stake in the university. I think that's all we can do, other than the other things that we're doing, you know, the, the pragmatic things. The other question, um, I don't know, does anybody else want to get go at the anti-intellectual question? I wanted to talk more generally. <laughs> well, maybe you should. I don't want to answer all the questions, but... No, I think we should. I think it's a good yeah. idea. I think we should move it around. Does anybody yeah. want to have a go at the other questions? Look, uh, 
Well, okay. There was a um, really interesting question about pr a practical play yeah, about I'll, I'll say something about pragmatics. Well, I'm glad you mentioned education of desire because for a very long time, utopian writers in the present, such as um, uh, Ruth Levitas and others, all say, of course, utopian thinking today isn't about creating perfect societies. In fact, they often argue, and it never was. <coughs> These were just ideas put forward. It was about the education of desire, which um, um, Edward Thompson, using some French thinker whose name is escaping me, talked about when he was discussing the relevance of Morris's work. And so why utopian thinking? Utopian thinking as the education of desire seems so absolutely essential today is for reasons that if we don't think about the future, you know, there really is every reason, and many people are even thinking, we won't have a future. And, and um, so we surely begin with statements like those of um, Jameson and others that um, it is easier today to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Well, actually, today, the end of the world and continuing capitalism in the form of neoliberalism, where only financial capitalism and profits matter, is the same thing as the end of the world. And so what are the practical things to say? The practical things to say is that capitalism as we know it, in the form in which we know it, which has been rolling back the state, rolling back welfare, has no way of actually recreating anything like an adequate future. It cannot incorporate the reproduction of communities, the reproduction of people. It can't talk about caring work because it wants everybody out there in the labour force making profits for, actually, for financial capital. This, this is not in any way a viable society. And so you begin from there saying, how can we move people away from the cynicism that there's nothing they can do, which you know, is one big reason why people voted Brexit apart from Brexit, that there's nothing they can do and just a plague on everybody for them to think, yes, there is something we can do. And of course, there's not only something we can do, there are many people who are doing things in different ways, trying to, you know, like, for instance, Kidscape gets uh, abolished, so people are trying to create new resources for kids. And other ways, trying to provide alternative neighbourhood services, alternative communities. Oddly, that is what second wave feminism was doing. You know, as many people, Sally Fraser was one of the people who said, well, actually, we're just radical social workers, really. We were trying to show how you could live differently, live better, you know, and that's why it actually was utopian thinking. So this seems to be such an obvious time, with everything almost in free fall, for us to start to say, look, well, first of all, we have to look what's going on around us, and then we've got to think, how do we actually um, try and persuade people there is an alternative way of living? It's incredibly hard because, of course, it's so much easier for the middle class or indeed actually for university students despite and academics, despite all the pressures on us, to try and think and act differently. And so, you know, that is what we just have to begin writing about, talking about, as people are, but as we have to continue to do.
Um, yeah, uh, if I can come back to that question of uh, needing a practical response to the question of what can people do. Um, let me try and answer it with an example. See, when you, um, okay, a long ago I read a book called The Feminist Papers, which is a collection of writings um, on feminism. Um, covering the 19th and part of the 20th century. The assumption behind that book was that feminism was something that grew in the US and the, and the UK. And the editor, I forget her name, and somebody or the other, um, actually said so in the introduction and said there was nothing going on in any other part of the world um, that could be recorded here. I think there is a way in which uh, as feminists we do assume that and it's not, uh, it's not something that's difficult to understand because the ways in which power has played out in the world um, there is a first world, there is a second, there's, all that is changing now and as you say everything's in free fall um, uh, so we really don't know what's going to happen but that is the way in which power and the transmission of knowledge and the creation of knowledge indeed has played out and so also in the histories of feminism where say feminisms from our parts of the world are often seen as somewhere behind in the race where we need to catch up with where you are and where the battles that have been fought for feminism here, very important battles, are, uh, so can be e transported there in the sense that, for example, equality is a big thing for feminism in the West. I'm using all these words in quotation marks. Um, for us, Equality, the equality question is a much more troubled question. Take in a country like India, I can speak for India because I come from there, what is a woman, who is a woman asking to be equal to? Is a poor woman asking to be equal to a poor man? Does she want to be equal to a rich woman? Does she want to be equal to a rich man? It's a very troubled concept. So we have to think in other ways. So it doesn't immediately transport. Work, the right to work, very important concept for us too. But women go out of the house and work and they get their salary and give it back to their parents. No politicization, no empowerment is written into that transformative step, otherwise transformative step. So you can't immediately transform or take it there. So in a sense, our feminisms are different because our histories and our contexts are different. Okay? And yet our feminisms are connected because our histories are connected. So to me, the first step for any change is to see the difference and accept it as difference, to see the connections, and to not see a hierarchy where some of us are ahead and some of us are behind. There may be a hierarchy. There is a hierarchy. There are some truths in that which we have to accept. But nevertheless, if you don't think that way, but if you think of a mosaic of movements across the world where we've all got different things to contribute. I think there's a way in which we can learn from each other. And I think that is a much more creative way. And I feel 
that why should feminists not do this? You know, all those guys are doing this anyway. They are being hierarchical, they are being, they are being what they are being. Yeah. But we can do something differently. So that's what I mean, that's as practical as it can be. Well, well, I don't feel utopian, but I was just, it just occurred to me, rather I don't have, I mean, I, that there, there are things about this last week which do lift my heart, and I think, and I do think that the, um, the deep, I'm thinking about the question of internationalism and so on, and I'm thinking about the deep distress that many people, especially young people, but not exclusively the young people, are feeling about what is happening in relation to their own sense of international yeah, belonging. Exactly. You know, and I think that that's, that sense of, it's a really powerful sense of international belonging. Now, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a European one, but then what is Europe these days? I mean, you know, the, the whole question of the movement of peoples has thrown, and then I think the really deep felt reaction to some of the, the, the racist incidents and so on, where people, and people's experience of themselves as a community, exactly. I think there is a kind of reaching out that is going on, a sense of wanting to express <coughs> solidarity, you know, with, with, with people right across the, the board in this country. So I think these things, you know, I mean, one of these, once I was listening to the radio, I thought, feminists for Europe, that's what we've been <laughs> now listening to in Russia. I think, no, no, you know, global, but I mean, that's a kind of, but that, I think, and I did feel very much when I was talking to young feminists um, uh, over, over the last little while, because of course you're absolutely right, there's never been a post-feminist period. There have been highs and lows and so on, is that there's a much more internationalism in their awareness than there was when you're absolutely right. I mean, we just, there were some people who maybe thought about empire and so on, but I, I wasn't one of them. I, mean, I, I remember very well, you know. And so I think, and I think that these things have also changed. Um, so I, those are things that I, I make me feel, to say, not utopian, but a bit more optimistic. Yeah, yeah. I think we might have time for another quick round of questions, and I can see three. There was the one at the front, then Sheila at and then the back, again at the back, and then again at the back, and then maybe one more here. So this, yeah. I'm going to say something about uh, what you call the new complexion of the future of feminisms. Um, the intersectional, but trans, and I was very interested in talking about the disappearing category of women, and I wondered what you could possibly mean by that, the disappearing category of women in relation to trans and intersectionality. Sheila at the very back first. Where's Mac? Actually, I haven't got a question. I, I wanted to um, say, make a contribution. Not that one. Sweet. <laughs> Can I just shout? Just yeah, shout, please. Sheila. <laughs> um, what, I, what I wanted to cheer you up with is my saying that subversives are irrepressible. <laughs> and that ideas travel, and they did travel um, in the 19th century, but they will travel for us too. Um, in uh, the uh, 19th century, the people who really remembered Mary Wollstonecraft were radicals, like the Irish radicals, um, and secularists, and uh, anarchists, because um, other, the people who were very cautious 
uh, feminists thought that she was not very respectable. Um, and of course, as Barbara knows, there's the links between the Elenite women and the French women in the same period. Uh, and Flora Tristan, who had the idea of uh, the international coming to Britain, I think she, she searches out Anna Wiener when she comes. Um, in, 18, in the 1840s in France, there are fascinating utopian women, including Jean Derouin, who um, developed the idea of women's cooperative with the idea that the male better paid workers would contribute to offset the problems of women's low pay. Um, she came to Britain as an exile from France. She had contact with the, the American women who were um, developing ideas about women's rights through anti-slavery <laughs> movement. And she's connected to the Socialist League when she's in Britain and influences Isabella Ford, <coughs> who is a socialist and a feminist in the suffrage movement and who wrote <coughs> Women's Factory Conditions in the 80s. And then oh, my connection and learning about um, uh, other countries came partly through the work of Indian socialist feminists, but also uh, Kumari Jayawadina from mm -hmm. Sri Lanka, who talks about the ways in which, um, uh, in the early 19th century, Roy comes to <coughs> Bristol, and he, in, the re reformer in, from India, and he interacts with Unitarian women uh, who were anti-slavery, and those Bristol women who were anti-slavery, they are the people who pie their suffrage. So on it goes, and dear Jane Clapton came up, which I was very pleased about. And she uh, was influenced by Owen, she was around in the 1880s discussing uh, advanced ideas about women. She took up the cause of birth control and gets involved in the suffrage movement then in Edinburgh in the early 20th century, where she influences a guy called John S. Clark, who was a lion tamer who joined the Socialist Labour Party <laughs> and who uh, was on the run in the First World War. And he describes uh, her as having an absolute crucial influence on, on him. He's somebody who knew a woman I've written about called Alice Swinton, who was against the First World War. So on and on and on it goes. And we had a woman from the suffrage movement who came to help us organize the first women's suppression conference. So it's huge, carries on in this underground way. Thank you. So Thank you. You've got the mic already. Okay. Thank you very, very much for, for your lovely contributions. I've just come back from Berlin, where the discussions were completely different uh, from what they were here. And I was really thinking... I don't think everyone can hear you. Maybe you can... Sorry. Two of the really big questions that we as feminists and as socialists might want to think in terms of solving and having our utopian desires is the movement of people which will not stop. We, I think we should really think uh, uh, creatively and imaginatively and globally, if not you know, from a European basis. And of course the other big question, which I think 
behoves us all as feminists is to think about the environment. Two, two of these really, really big questions, I think, could be our utopian dreams to solve them. Thank you. One more question at the very, very back. The woman in the blue scarf. I was just sort of picking up on what the woman down the front said about the Irish struggle and the issues around abortion and the kind of rather alienating language which has been adopted in, you know, the re in recent years by so much of the academy and how that kind of hyper-intellectualised language um, and then on the other hand you have this kind of anti-intellectual, increasingly anti-intellectualised popular culture whether the, you know, the, that there's a responsibility there, which kind of need, need to reoccupy that ground, which was very much occupied by second wave feminism. So the word, you know, the complicated classes, extra middle classes, and how we might find ways of recreating that, even you know, in a climate where obviously all of that has been starved of funding, but it's also about language and about, and about will and about desire to communicate to those outside the academy. Okay, thank you. We're eating a little bit now into our drinking and socialism time, so I'm just going to give the panel going back this way a minute or two. Socialising, socialism. Indeed. You're passing on this one, again. Drinking and socialism goes well together, I find. Well, I suppose I would <coughs> begin by saying if you want to think about what feminists can contribute to designs on the future. Um, we begin by saying feminism never was primarily simply an individual aspirational thing, which is what um, these times try and repackage us as. It was never that. And so even when we um, asked for the right to control our bodies, which was about um, reproductive rights, we also were aware of something that's got far more important now, which is how do we have children? How do we have sufficient control over our working lives, over our communities, and over our relation in within our relationships? How do we have time to even form relationships so that we could choose to have children, or so, so that we could choose to create better environments? So that you know, in, in places that have been uh, most threatened, to return to uh, Sheila's idea that the radical. <coughs> spirit is irrepressible, such as Greece, someone else in the audience could have talked about the way in which in the depth of austerity and crisis there, people are trying to create free shops, trying to create um, other ways of working together, particularly amongst um, you know, via voluntary labour and unemployment, so it's never the um, total answer, but nevertheless, spreading ideas that there is another way of living, there are other ways of living together, not only locally, but nationally and globally, and trying to weave that picture together. That is the work of the utopian present, absolutely, in relation to green politics. I mean, we know that it is... Um, uh, Sarah Lucas and, and uh, the people who inspire us today are precisely those women who are thinking about the future in different ways, as well as you know talking about it now in terms of a politics now. I was going to pass. I'm happy to talk to you a bit later. And I thought I'd let Barbara finish. I think we do. We, we we do want to finish and have a drink. And I just want to thank you all.
for coming. It's a, it, you know, it's a, you've been a great audience. You've asked some really challenging questions and made some very interesting points. So let's go and socialism a bit. <laughs>